I am Connor McCloud of the Clan McCloud, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. Give metalurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast, to our knowledge, dedicated to breaking down, analysing and generally just loving the heck out of uh, the 1986 cult classic Highlander. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, I'm joined by my kinsman, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a heck of a pleasure to be here. And for this episode, and hopefully the next, we are joined by Mark and Elaine Gregerson of the Honeymoon Period podcast. Hiya! Hello! Well, thank you, it's great to have you back. Oh, we're absolutely delighted to come back. Although, a lot of pressure, because we've listened to all the other episodes and the guests that you've had on have been absolutely fantastic. So, a little bit nervous coming back. We've actually done some research for once, which uh, <laughs> really is a change from our, from our podcasts. I think that there's a good chance our research, I, I suspect, may overlap. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if you went the same methods I did, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, now I'm really intrigued. Well, in this episode, we will be looking at uh, the time code between 51 minutes and 58 seconds, and 53 minutes and 8 seconds. Uh, and in this episode, Ramirez educates Connor on his uh, his nemesis, the Kurgan. And um, yes, uh, well, let's dive in. Yeah, let's talk about a Russian madman. <laughs> which seems quite apt, as we are recording on the day that Russia has invaded Ukraine, under the orders of Vladimir Putin. So, let's... Escape into Highlander. <laughs> Highlander's fantastic for all sorts of things, isn't it? And uh, whatever's going on in the world, <laughs> you put Highlander on and uh, feel a little bit better. Yes, that's right. So, okay, the previous scene in the marketplace ends with uh, Connor handing Ramirez back the katana and basically going, no, I won't leave Heather, and Connery sliding it into the scabbard. Uh, we then have an audio cut of a pigeon. <laughs> And it's flapping inside the, the castle, inside the kind of renovated, derelict castle where uh, Connor and Heather live. <laughs> Which, yeah, it does seem to be like a, a renovated ruin, doesn't it? It's There's sort of lots of moss. It's got that staircase running around the side. Oh, it's quite obviously a set, but it is wonderfully um, Errol Flynn. It's a fixer-upper. I don't know why. It kind of reminded me of the set from Fraggle Rock. <laughs> I think it's all the moss on the side and, yeah... Yeah, it, it it feels... I don't think Fraggle Rock, um, wonderful children's TV show of the 1980s... Let the music play, I don't think it quite felt quite as damp. Like, when you look in that castle, and it's a bit... It's like a keep, isn't it? It's a bit of the, the keep of the castle, I think. Not being a castle expert. But when you look at it in Highlander, it just feels so cold and dark and like there's water running down the walls which i don't think they quite had in in fraggle rock well and you've got heather doing the laundry while surrounded by pigeons it's just going to get shat on again <laughs> there's just so many pigeons i think i laughed when you first mentioned it rob when you mentioned about this pigeon in the audio because when i watched it again i just hadn't realized just how many pigeons do you need to have within your castle what you, you think they imported the pigeons uh, especially yeah there are <laughs> 
point in time. Yeah, it's it's like it's like you know if the pigeons ever leave the castle, yeah, <laughs> or if they need to take a message across the valley, or or. It's always good eating. <laughs> That's how they make their money, Rob. I think we figured it out. Rob and I, in the uh, in the previous episode, were trying to figure out exactly how Connor and Heather make a living. Mm. And they are clearly, they run the local uh, messenger pigeon depot. They are the postal service <laughs> for the area. That's exactly right. That's it. It's all very bird heavy, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> She's got. She's getting a, a chicken yes. in the in the scene before, and now we've got all the pigeons. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. And is there anyone with a with a bird like name in the film? No, but it's still bird heavy. Yes. Well, ah, uh, but but of course we have a Spanish peacock. So yes, there you go. We do. I cannot swim, you Spanish peacock. Oh, okay. There's definitely something in there. Okay. There's there's definitely the the seed of an episode title in there. Yeah. Then we have an avian episode, the avian theory uh, for Highlander. We'll need to work on that one. <laughs> And, well, you've got Ramirez and Connor sat on that upper level, which uh, I know Rob can talk a little bit about the uh, mechanics of that. But you've got to kind of wonder, what purpose does that upper level serve? I mean, presumably it was part of the original castle. There was probably another floor. But the whole building is sort of just open to the elements. It's, uh, even pigeons aside, it doesn't look like it'd be a very nice place to live. Yeah, and you're right, that ledge does just absolutely go nowhere. At one point I thought, oh, well, you can use it to open and close the windows. But then I remembered that there's nothing actually in the windows. They're just... (laughs) You might use it to pour boiling oil on a marauding uh, clan. But yeah, um, I can't think of much else use for those other than just sitting and dangling your legs down and catching up with a Spanish peacock. I love the idea. Let's close a window. The the building is open to the elements. (laughs) We should put windows in, though. I keep forgetting to do that. I reckon that when... Connor and Heather, as blissfully happy as they are, inevitably are going to have a row at some point. When they do row, one of them goes and sits up there and sulks until um, until the row blows over. Oh, it's Connor sulks. It's definitely Connor who sulks. Yeah, it is Connor who sulks. He goes up there and sulks after they've had a row. It does look fun, though. Yes, it does. So she has to lure him back down by, you know, promising him pie and ale. <laughs> yes. If you come back down, Connor, you can have pie and ale. Can I have lots of it? If you want. <laughs> Well, on yeah, that thought about it looking fun. So Sean Connery and um, Christopher Lambert were both really rather annoyed that they had to go up there to film the scene because it was a breakaway set. And yeah, later we will see the set just begin to crumble, which is all obviously planned. But uh, yes, apparently they weren't very happy sitting on something that was designed to just collapse and fall 30 feet. Um Funny that. Yeah, indeed. But they went up there and did it anyway. But I thought it's, again, just one of those things because it starts off with that wonderful crane shot up to them. And it's like, well, they could be sitting at that table where, as we'll get to in the next episode, Ramirez and Heather are just having a drink. But no, it's better if we get the crane shot up. Um, So therefore, yeah, can you go and sit up on the breakaway set, please? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think partly it's because it positions them as being separate from Heather again. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was thinking, there's, there's no real need for them to be up so high and, you know, sat with the furs on and legs dangling down. There's no real need for it because, like you say, you've got all this set beneath them with the table and Heather pottering away underneath. But that lovely sweeping shot all the way up, just it, it's just lovely. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It is like Connor is a child and he's got his friend round for lunch. <laughs> it is it is like Heather's the mum doing all the tidying up downstairs. Yeah. But I suppose it's also one of those things where it's like, 
that's where Ramirez first begins to explain exactly who the Kurgan is to Connor. That's also, of course, the place where Ramirez is, is going to meet his end at the hand of the Kurgan. So maybe foreshadowing a bit there as well. Mm. I know we've said this is quite obviously a set, but I think the lighting in this shot is absolutely stunning with sort of the light coming in through the fake windows. Um, it just looks absolutely amazing on sort of HD transfer on your Netflix nowadays. Um, mm. It does sort of show the set for what it is, but it does just look absolutely beautiful. Um, you get really get the feel of it being foggy Highland morning. Yeah, indeed, definitely. These the sets in this film. I mean, so the New York set for Connor's apartment is absolutely wonderful, even though it's quite impractical. I mean, who has a sofa that long? But also here, it's like again, it's just another great set that they've built and again we've talked about it in the past but just that very very tactile nature of Highlander and these being real spaces even the sets uh yeah just adds to that specialness that the film has so yeah and in this you've got um Ramirez introducing or sort of explaining to Connor who the Kurgan is because um Connor's already encountered him he kind of says you know well when we first met you felt ill when we first met you felt ill remember that wasn't the first time you felt that sensation, was it? No. And then gets him to remember when he, when the McLeod fought the Frasers and a black knight. And as soon as he says that, you have the cut. You've got the flashback, the very abrupt flashback to the Kurgan running him through. When the McLeods fought the Frasers and a black knight, I felt it then. Only it was different, more painful. So when he goes, you know, I felt it then, only it was different, more painful. It's like, well, yes, you got stabbed that time. <laughs> I think sometimes you think, oh, it's it's an exposition time, isn't it? Here we are, we were a little bit exposition, but I think it's done really deftly. It, it's not too heavy, it's nice and light. Um, the cutback reminds us of what happened. We don't need to dwell on it too much, but we get this little bit of insight into where the Kurgans came from. Yeah, and in this we can kind of, I guess, presume that the Kurgan led Ramirez to Connor, but you've kind of got to wonder how... Because how was Ramirez able to find Connor first? This is, you know, five years later, and the Kurgan ran him through and then just disappears for five years. And Ramirez has enough time to, you know, track Connor down and train him before the Kurgan turns up, you know, which in the next scene, which we'll discuss. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, isn't there? I know you've done that on previous episodes of thinking about the timeline and thinking about why Connor is so special. And I know you've you've spoken on previous episodes about that the, the training and the training montage and how he um, quite swiftly overtakes or at least matches Ramirez and there's this lovely like we talk about the kinsmanship this idea of brother um, coming through but it's like you know why why is Connor so special how does Kurgan know that Connor's special it's a really interesting thing to think about yes my personal theory in terms of the delay is that Kurgan obviously took a long time to get up after being dogpiled by that by that bunch of Scots <laughs> you know if, you've, if, you, if you've ever played rugby and you've really been taken out and you're just kind of lying there yeah like that only five years yeah like a five-year winding <laughs> really knocked it out of me yeah because you don't think that that the Kurgan would have paid the Frasers to just scour the countryside looking for Connor. Um, and, yeah, so it's interesting to think what was the Kurgan doing for five years when he was literally just over the hill at one point. But, well, maybe he thought that he got it wrong and that Connor did die, but that's not likely. Yeah, you'd think that he would have just 
well, potentially gone into the McLeod village and just cut and burned, you know, just slaughtered his way to Connor. Yeah. And then obviously we got this, uh, we have this lovely transition to the, um, the mountains um, with Ramirez and Connor, you know, riding at a distance. Uh, in the version that I've seen, you can't tell whether or not it's uh, Lambert and Connery, which suggests, you know, do you think Lambert does most of his own riding in this? I didn't, I didn't notice any. I just thought that it was it was them. But then, having said that, it's only on the previous episodes where you've talked about um, sort of the stunt doubles on top of the hills when they're doing the training and the swords flying about in the air right up high that it dawned on me that it wasn't Christopher Lambert. <laughs> it was someone wearing a wig. So I might not be the best person to <laughs> to to work that out. But I just oh, there they are on a horse. Christopher Lambert feels like the sort of man that just rides around a horse most of the time. That's true. <laughs> I think, yeah, he might well have been in a horse. In a horse? This isn't the Revenant. He might well have been on a horse in Tarzan, Lord of Greystoke. I feel like that's a thing that would have happened. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 I think if Christopher Lambert was prepared to use a sword in this film, he was also prepared to get onto a horse at some point. Myopia be damned. <laughs> Can we assume that this was the first day of the uh, ADR recordings between Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery? Because the accent seems particularly dodgy in this little bit here. Um, I I was going to ask everyone, how many R's do we think Christopher Lambert put into From when he says, Who is the Kurgan? Where does he come from? <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Kurgan? And where does he come from? So. That is an amazing way you've just said from there. It's not a Scottish way of saying it, but it's an amazing way of saying it. I found a Christopher Lambert interview recently where he talks about apparently he'd worked with uh, the uh, he'd worked on the Scottish accent for four months with a, a coach, a voice coach, who would presumably have been um, the, the late Joe Washington. Mm. And apparently, when uh, Lambert was on set, Connery only corrected his accent once, which you got to feel may have been out of kindness. Mm. And apparently, that happened in the scene when they were filming in the tower. Yeah. Apparently, Sean uh, Connery corrected him on one word, and he he was just very 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 kind with it. Oh. Yeah, I think he was. I can't. I can't do it. I can't. I can't be correcting yeah, every dude. single word. I can't do it every single time. But jumping from a French accent to a Scottish accent—I mean, that is a big ask of anyone, no matter how great the actor. Um, Maybe that was the first day then, and uh, he was after that. He was kind of like, nah, "Sod it, I'll just let it pass." It does feel like, yeah, in trying to correct um, Lambert's pronunciation, we are back in "twould that it were so simple" territory. Oh, that is such a deep cut. <laughs> To a Coen Brothers film that no one really saw, but that's really interesting. All right, let's try this. Your line, just say it as I said. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure, okay. Would the tutorial so simple? <laughs> do you want to say which one it's from, Rob? God, the name of it's gone out of my head. It's from um, Hail Caesar. It's the uh, the scene with Alden Ehrenreich and Rafe Fiennes. <laughs> of course. Well, look at that. I, I asked you to say the name of the film would that it were so simple <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my coat <laughs> although I have to pick up there is one part of um, the scene where they're on the horse where I didn't realise until we put the subtitles on today that Sean Connery isn't saying Although, so I'll go back to the line it's something like um, with heart and faith and something like that and then he says steel with heart, faith, steel but I thought he was saying steed, 
like as in horse, <laughs> he, he makes a gesture to the horse. No, it's to the sword, honey. But it's, it's to, to the, the sword. sword. I just realised that today. There's so many things that watching Highlander for this podcast has really brought out of me. I'm like, you know, I'm sure it's like heart fate because he looks up and he sort of puts his hand in the air. And, and then with steed, you know, like fair steed. A steed will take me far, but no, no, it's not horse. Yeah, it's like with heart and faith and steed. And what do you mean by that? You run him down and you're a fucking horse. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that is great. I'm only going to hear steed from now on, you know. Um, though... like also, I watched this as a child. How am I, how am I knowing the word steed? <laughs> As like an eight-year-old, what is wrong with me? Well, you could have seen uh, the '90s movie The Avengers, in which Ray Fiennes played John Steed against Sean Connery's villain Sir Augusta Winter. <laughs> so many Ray Fiennes references. <laughs> I think you're also uh, overestimating how how old Elaine is there, or <laughs> underestimating how old she is. <laughs> or you could have read Black Beauty. True. Yeah, you know, either or. <laughs> yeah, either or. Either The Avengers or Black Beauty. It's one of the two, it has to be. I've just been looking to sample Sean Connery from that movie. Now I have my tenuous excuse. <laughs> <laughs> like you ever needed an excuse, no matter how tenuous. Yeah, good luck finding a memorable quote from that. I'm not sure that... Anyway, but yes. <laughs> well, he says something about, if they want weather, they're they'll pay me for it, damn it, or words to that effect. So that, it's, it's quite good. Oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? It's, it's, it's a quote that's so good, I can't remember it properly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there is a mad quote about the weather. You will buy your weather from me. My God. But of course, he has two of the best lines of the film in this particular scene. Mark and Elaine, did you write down any of the memorable lines that Ramirez says? I mean, are we going to get into the children fighting dogs for meat? (laughs) Um, Yes, we can do. They weren't the two that I thought. But let's get into that. Because I have a lot of questions. That is a very, very good memorable quote. So it's all yours. So the line is, and I've wrote this down word for word. For amusement, they toss children into pits with hungry dogs to fight for meat. For amusement, they toss children into pits with hungry dogs to fight for meat. But I can't work out if the dogs are fighting each other and if the children are the meat at the end of it, or if the dogs are fighting the children. What, for meat? There's some meat down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there is a prize of, like, a like a, a, a ham or something like that. <laughs> and the winner gets tossed a ham. <laughs> children fighting dogs. Let's, let's really hope the children win there. Well, yeah. <laughs> the ham. I looked at that and I the grammar of it just does not sit right mm. with me. I don't think I don't think we need for meat at the end. I think if you oh, say <laughs> with hungry dogs to fight, I think that fits better. Why put for meat on the end? I hate this line. It's like one of the one of the bits of the film that really like just goes through me. I just hate the idea of it. I don't think it's necessarily meant as a <laughs> as something to warm to them. <laughs> yeah, I realise it's there as a character moment. Like, oh, if you didn't like him already, you're not going to like him now. <laughs> well, the um, the actual kind of graphic novel kind of origin story for him suggests that, well, at least as, you know, as a young man, the Kurgan was more a victim of this culture than anything. Yeah. That actually he was, he had been, you know, treated savagely. And, what, you know, one of the reasons that he does in, in himself grow up to be brutal. Well, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It well, that takes away some of the fun of it, though. It does. We're gonna apply a psychological reasoning to the Kurgan and give him like a background of abuse and mm. I'm not sure I need a sympathetic background for the Kurgan. No, not at all. It's uh but to be honest, I'm yeah, I'm with Elaine on the I think you do need 
for meat at the end because I always took it that yeah the dogs are fighting over each other to get to the babies because that is the meat and oh I never thought they were babies <laughs> no, thanks I... Rob <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, it's getting darker it's getting darker <laughs> I was thinking they were like six seven year old um... no because a six seven year old well I, I, I suppose they could put up more of a fight and that would be more sport for the Kurgan to watch so yeah you're right it's funny I always imagine them just tossing babies in which I think is like a kind of a cinematic Rorschach test for me <laughs> but anyway oh god that's got a bit dark but yes I always thought what a great character and beat I suppose in terms of all right so for sport or for fun they would watch dogs rip children apart <laughs> so he's the bad guy then yeah <laughs> oh. There's also the fact that, by what I can tell, and again, I'm not a, um, a historian or a sociologist, the Kurgans were, as a people, you know, they were a pastoralist culture, a semi-nomadic, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of cribbing from my notes here, that was spread across the Russian steppes uh, all the way to um, uh, the Danube in about 3500 BC. And that they really, like, they really actually end up forming the basis for a lot of the kind of proto-Indo-European culture. As in, like, you know, they provided one of the very early kind of languages. And uh, the word Kurgan itself means barrow or like burial mound, I think in Turkish or Russian. Um, and there's actually, there's, there's a thing called the Kurgan hypothesis, also known as steppe theory, which, yeah, talking about the Russian steppes, how a lot of the European people originated in that part of the world and essentially migrated to form, you know, uh, the kind of base of what we understand as the European peoples today. Wow, that really links back to what you said previously about Clancy Brown wanting to bring forth that idea of culture and that idea of history in his representation of the Kurgan as well. That makes total sense. Yeah, it's also it also makes a bit of a nonsense because it's a bit like just calling him the European. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's such... And if, if you're going to have a villain in this film called the European, he'd obviously have to be played by Christopher Lambert, so... <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a great word, though. Kurgan. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a good name for mm. a bad guy. Um, I think there's... Yeah, yeah Rob, you hit the exact same websites as I did. Um, so, uh, But they spread their language through war and conquest, um, I was reading, that uh, the reason why they migrated west was because it seemed to be that they were quite good warriors, which again ties into this scene where Ramirez describes the Kurgan as the perfect warrior, I think. He is the strongest of all the immortals. He is the perfect warrior. But, um, but yeah, they weren't just... A town I think they were like quite a large number of people so yeah it does seem as if they're also farmers and there's actually a type of cattle that's named the Kurgan as well um yeah so lots of yeah it's um yes it's the name of a breed of cattle in Russia the Kurgan so huh. <laughs> I hate to think what this cow's gonna look like yeah I'm trying to think of a pun on moo but <laughs> according to though according to the highlander origins comic for the kurgan uh, he first encountered and actually fought ramirez at the battle of uh, i think it's platai in ancient greece and ramirez was serving was 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 um, on the side of the spartan army now the spartans if i've learned anything from you know the movie 300 is the spartans were actually brutal in their treatment of infants so it feels a bit like you know ramirez pot kettle black on this one <laughs> um, 
But then you've got, obviously, Ramirez calls the Kurgan. He says that he's the strongest of all the immortals, the perfect warrior. If he wins the prize, mortal man would suffer an eternity of darkness. If he wins the prize, mortal man would suffer an eternity of darkness. Again, how does Ramirez know what the nature of the prize is? <laughs> it's like, I, oh, it doesn't sound as good if he says, if he wins the prize, a mortal man would suffer an eternity of darkness. I'm guessing. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Maybe. I've got some drawings. I left them in Spain. But, um, look, let me tell you, I've planned this out perfectly. So, Rob, what were the lines then? Because if this, the one about the children in the pit, were you saying this wasn't the line that you were thinking of? No, because it's so horrible. But um, the, <laughs> well, One of the lines we've just said, because it's such a wonderful Connery line, if he wins the prize, a mortal man would suffer an eternity of darkness. There's just so much sibilance in that line for him to chew over so that's always one of the just one of the best lines in the movie and the um and the other one of course is in the end there can be only one in the end there can be only one Ooh. yes yeah. yeah we did have we did have that we did we talked about that earlier so i'm just looking at mark going, we, we said that one we, <laughs> said that one. we, we definitely <laughs> looked up we, we looked up the script to find out exactly how many instances of there can be only one there is in the uh, and how many are there and I think there's, I think there's five. Was that many we got? Yeah, and this is this is the fourth of five. Yeah, because there's the first one, obviously, in the opening narration. There's the time that the Kurgan says it in the past, where he almost kills Connor, and then there's the time that he says it again in the present, when he almost kills Connor, and then there's this one, and then there's Lambert says it at the end of the film. And we're not counting the one in A Kind of Magic. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, that's very. Oh wow, that is. Some deep knowledge there. I say I really like the uh, with heart, faith, and steel line. It's just that Connery is so incredibly charming when he delivers it. He is. Although the, I think there is a potentially a more cynical reading of the character that you know we were talking about. Why doesn't Ramirez seem to be competing for the prize himself? Why does he, you know, why does he train up these other people to, you know, essentially be contenders for it? You know, and is there the reading of it that, well, he knows that he's essentially going to end up sending these, all of these people after the Kurgan in the hope that one of them will take the Kurgan's head and he won't have to fight the Kurgan? Mm. I have to admit that up until about two hours ago when I was watching this again, I'd always just thought, oh, well, Ramirez is getting old. And then suddenly realised he was an immortal this afternoon, and that's why. And that's why that's kind of irrelevant. <laughs> he wants a younger model to take over. No, he's going to live forever. <laughs> that's brilliant. Um, I don't know. I always um, again. That's one of the things, isn't it? Because they do. Because they do say, or Connor says in an earlier scene, "If it came down to the two of us, would you take my head?" If it came down to just us two, would you take my head? So there is this thing there that you can't really have friends, but that's just going to naturally happen anyway. Um, there is a way that you can... I think you're supposed to read it as he's preparing people to face the Kurgan so that they don't just get picked off really easily. But it is really interesting to think of it as game theory. And he's basically just shoving other people out in front of him because he knows what they're going to have to face. So he's the John Nash of the Immortals. Yes, he literally has a beautiful mind. That is all about selfishness. If we all go for the blonde, we block each other, 
Not a single one of us is going to get her. So then we go for her friends. But they will all give us the cold shoulder because nobody likes to be second choice. What if no one goes for the blonde? We don't get in each other's way. And we don't insult the other girls. That's the only way we win. I don't like the reading of that, I have to admit. (laughs) I just, I really like that sort of the mentoring, the father figure, um, all all the films that you've mentioned before, the the Karate Kid springs to mind straight away. This idea of someone coming in and and training another person to reach their full potential. I don't know, because I work in education, so it really sort of appeals to me. This idea, I Mark's rolling his eyes. There's people coming in and helping other people to reach their full potential. Um, So I, I just really like that. I'd hate to think of it as him trying to game it and getting rid of the Kurgan so he can eventually win the prize. I think, I think, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I think there is, I think he knows, there's an inevitability about it, that he knows that one day his time will come and he's trying to train these other people to be able to to take on the Kurgan when he is gone. That's my sort of preferred, preferred not wanting to think about children in pits reading of the situation. <laughs> I think that's also the film's reading of it as well. I don't think the film is uh, suggesting that Ramirez is just an opportunist. Um, yes, I think that Rob has been very, very unfair to Ramirez there. No, I do I do agree. That's, that's my deliberately cynical, probably misinterpretation of it. I think it's more like that, again, Ramirez is thousands of years old. He, you know, was born in ancient Egypt. He's suffered so many losses over the millennia, fought so many battles... That at this point, I do think he's just looking to pass the torch. And there's a, I mean, there's a degree of that in Highlander Endgame when um, Connor allows Duncan to take his head, and you've got you know, you've got some lovely kind of you know as, as you know you see it in slow motion the blades coming through the air just before it connects with Connor's neck. You see all the flashbacks to. There's definitely a shot of um, of Heather. I think there might even be a, there might be a shot of Ramirez. But yeah, the idea that. After a certain point, life does lose its meaning when it's yeah. going to be infinite. And again, yeah, as we talked about in the uh, the previous scene, everybody that you know who's not an immortal will will die, and you you will go on. It's a happy sentiment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's one of the reasons why I think the film works so well because it does have that emotional core and that sense of melancholy to it. Um, yes, it's uh, it's interesting to think, yeah, that. I don't know if Ramirez is just kind of getting fed up with the whole thing, though. I think if he had have not encountered the Kurgan here, he would have just gone and found someone else, maybe, and uh, become their mentor because his work here was done. Oh, do you think so? Because I got the feeling that he he was really enjoying being around Connor and Heather. Um, And even though he's trying to, you know, you must leave her, brother, all of that sort of stuff. I think he, it's almost like he's found a, a little family that he can be involved with. And like we we don't know, do we, how long he's been with them for. But I, I get the sense that he's been there for quite some time, building up this training, going to the market, sitting, having a glass of wine. You know, all of that sort, sort of thing going on, that he's almost become a family friend, someone who pops over on an evening um, to, to sit in your castle and chat about your exploits that sense of him being part of the family i think it sits quite strongly with me i again i don't like the idea that he's gonna like pop off somewhere else and leave them and go and find someone and yeah but maybe that says more about me than it does about him i quite like the idea that he's trying to get rid of connor so that he can try it on with heather (laughs) 
Because without going forward to the next scene, there's some definite flirt in there. Oh, no, no. We'll, I mean, we'll talk about that next, but no, no, no. I don't, I don't agree. <laughs> We're now back to game theory. Go on. You need to leave her. No, no. Okay, you need to go fight this massive monster then. <laughs> well, we're all back on game theory, aren't we? Yes. Actually, <laughs> oh, this is all beginning to add up. Okay. Now I'm beginning to doubt if Ramirez is even an immortal. <laughs> And after the way he snuck up on them, you know, there's yeah. <laughs> this is just an elaborate tale that he's woven. <laughs> just to justify a bit of a peeping Tom. Actually. Yeah, he's lived a few villages along his entire life and has just kind of heard some rumours from the McLeod clan about this thing that happened. And he says, oh, this guy's clearly delusioned about like yeah, being immortal or something. I'll pretend to be immortal so I can cop off with his missus. The perfect plan. <laughs> That would still be a better story than Highlander 2. So, anyway. And there goes the alarm. Indeed. <laughs> um, because you were like, how will I find them? They're not difficult to find. Go out to the moor and just look for the castle. <laughs> Like, they're probably shagging outside it. Yeah. Well, they're not going to shag inside it. It's full of fucking pigeons. <laughs> I know, it's cold. It's, it's cold, it's wet, and it's full of pigeons. Yeah. And moss. Oh. It's not conducive to romance. Especially if you try getting up on that ledge. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Mark's looking at me now. <laughs> Get what up on that ledge? <laughs> so many areas we could go from here. <laughs> On that note, is there anything else to say about the scene, do we think? The only thing I wanted to say is just the, the beautiful highlands again, you know, when you, you, you think you're going to be in the castle for a while, but then you get that shot out, we're on the horse, the steed, and uh, and you, you just get those lovely, lovely views again. I was just I was looking it up before I came on um, and seeing, like, where, where can I find, you know, Connor and Heather's castle? And people had taken loads and loads of pictures for TripAdvisor and I just sat just scrolling through about 60 of them. Nothing really to do with Highlanders, just the views were, were beautiful and I think, it again, it shows it off. So, well, on a previous episode, we uh, do provide exact directions on how to get to the, that sort of um, buttress that they, uh, that they have the uh, sword fight on top of. Yes, I remember. So I remember. I do think the final episode of Another Time McLeod should be recorded from there. Forget this place in London. Let's all go to the Highlands and do it. Oh, that's definitely a shout. Think of the wind. Get your little recorder up in the air. <laughs> your wind jammer on. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I've forgotten the wind jammer. I left it back at the hotel. Oh, no. Well, <laughs> um, is there anything else, I guess, uh, to talk about with this scene, do we think? Nothing from us. I think that's it. And Mr. Daniel? I'm done. Okay. Well, um, in which case, Mark and Elaine, would you like to plug your pluggables? Well, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. We are The Honeymoon Period Podcast, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Honeymoon Pod. Fantastic. And Mr. Daniel? Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. Uh, you can find my writing at filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk, electric-shadows.com um, If you want to listen to the other podcast that Rob and I do, then you can and it's called The Movie Robcast and you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this and if you want, if you want to follow that on Twitter, it is at Movie Robcast. Great. 
And uh, if yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. If you want to follow this podcast on Twitter, uh, Another Time McLeod, you can do so at McLeod Time. And if you want to drop us an email, if you've got any feedback, or you'd like to, you know, you think you might want a guest, or yeah, just uh, you can reach us at who wants to pod forever at gmail.com. Thank you again, Mark and Elaine, for joining us, and we're you know really happy to say that you're you should be sticking around for the next step. We are. That's brilliant. And thank you, Mr. Daniel. And thank you as always. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you'll join us again next week. And until then. All that's left to say is another time, MacLeod. Another time, MacLeod.